This is a Goodwill Media podcast. When I, you know, I think now of where this country is in terms of its, you know, the the demographic, it's basically 75% of the population between the ages of 15 to 25. I mean, that's a new nation being born right there, you know, so they represent a challenge, but they also represent an opportunity because they're growing up in a very different time. And the opportunity that they have to harness um, the technology that is there, you know, to be able to think outside the box and to develop new skills and to help bring Papua New Guinea into the 21st century. In 2021, change must happen. What we are told by leaders of developing nations loud and clear year after year is that the only way forward for development is to leave behind old aid paradigms and embrace respectful and cooperative ways of working. Ways of working that sees Australia's development program take its cues from local leaders first and get behind their powerful vision for change rather than foist our own ideas of development upon them. I'm Bridie Rice, Director at the Australian Council for International Development and your guest host this summer at Goodwill Hunters. You're listening to the sixth and final episode of my summer series examining Australian development and foreign policy. For the last five episodes, you've heard from Australian experts on what increased poverty in the region will mean for Australian foreign policy and our development program. But today, the last word goes to Serena Sassingen, powerhouse Papua New Guinean leader who is currently CEO of the Digicel Foundation and no stranger to many of our listeners. Every time I speak with Serena, I come away inspired, and today is no different. Serena challenges donors who are currently preoccupied with health to invest more in education, and she gives us a 101 on how best to get behind young leaders in Papua New Guinea who have a vision for their future. Definitely stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear Serena announce her newest project, a game-changing new TV channel designed to revolutionise education in PNG. And do keep an eye out for our bonus episode in the coming weeks where new Minister for International Development, Zed Sezelia, will respond to the ideas and insights my guests have raised throughout this series on Australian development and foreign policy. If you've missed any of the episodes in this series, then you can find them on the Goodwill Hunters website. Enjoy the episode. Abinun Chu, Serena, welcome to Goodwill Hunters Summer Series on Development and Foreign Policy. It's great to have you here. Abinun Brady, it's a pleasure to be here. Serena, you are a lawyer by trade, current CEO of the Digicel Foundation in Papua New Guinea. You've got an MBA, you're on, frankly, too many boards to mention. And of course, you co-founded The Voice, a leading youth development organisation in PNG. And actually something you co-founded when you are at uni with our mutual dear friend Lillian Ipu. So you're a household name for anyone who's had the privilege of working in PNG. And you've got a lot to say about the future of your country and its relations with partners like Australia. But before we get into that, let's kick off by telling us a little about some of the earlier influences in your life. Thanks, Brady. Well, thank you so much for the introduction. Um, Yeah, so, you know, earlier influence in my life, um, you know, basically I count myself to be someone that's been extremely privileged. Uh, My father was a diplomat, so that meant I, you know, got to live in different parts um, of the world growing up. And we know that life is all about having perspective and it's really important to have different types of perspective because it just helps to shape your view of the world. So I think um, 
coming back, obviously my parents, um, you know, have been the, the strongest influences in my life. My dad, you know, first generation educated, um, first to have a degree in our area, extremely hard worker, the person that really taught me the value of education. And uh, I can only imagine, you know, the world that he would have been brought up in. You know, I always talk about, you know, a kid that grew up completely in the village and basically was forced into the modern world. And he served in, you know, places like New York, in Brussels, in Tokyo. But I think, you know, we all know that in the 80s, 90s, the world wasn't, you know, a very nice place. Um, and there was, you know, um, a lot of challenges, obviously. Uh, but I think the thing that I've always appreciated about my dad is that he's he never, ever, you know, um, try to portray any of that on us. So all I've ever been taught is that if I work hard and, uh, um, you know, if I school and I put my focus on my education, I can be anything I want to be. And uh, my mom, you know, she was a housewife and she created the environment for us to flourish, you know, essentially. And uh, uh, she was only educated up until grade six, but she's probably the most strongest and industrious person um, that I know. And though my parents have had, you know, there's been a lot of complexities and you know, a lot of issues and struggles that we've gone through, um, I think just the combination of the both of them and what they brought to the table has really shaped, shaped the person that I am and, you know, the people that my, my siblings are as well. And we all believe in the power of education, you know, working hard and just living an honest, decent life. Uh, and we can make our country whatever it is that we want it to be and if we, we bring all of that to the table. So, Yeah. Mm -hmm. They sound like both precious and powerful lessons that you learned from both your mother and father. Absolutely. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Serena, as the daughter of a diplomat, I have to ask, uh, what what was your your favourite posting? Ah, yeah, no, there's so many places. I, I, I definitely Tokyo. Tokyo is where I spent um, the the majority of my early years. I think it came back at the ending of grade five for me, uh, and uh, my most favorite and precious place every Christmas holiday and school break, Disneyland. Parents would take <laughs> me there. And I think I, got, I really had to reflect on this sort of um, the power of imagination. And that's kind of what Disneyland does to you, you know, when you go there and you're forced to think about, you know, alternative worlds and just the power of, you know, what you can create with your mind and stories. And so I think that's always played a very kind of powerful, yeah, sort of yeah. role experience in my life. Oh, that's a rich insight to uh, where you get your imagination and your inspiration from, Serena. I actually was just thinking about that last week, so yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Serena, we are chatting here today because of one simple fact, and that is that for the first time in a generation, the World Bank predicts a rise in extreme poverty in our region, and PNG is likely to be hit hard. But so far this series, I've asked a bunch of experts what this means for Australian development and foreign policy, and their insights have been superb. But let's face it, it's easy to sit here in Canberra and talk about poverty in places that have frankly never felt so far away. It's simply not the same as seeing it each and every day or speaking to those in a village that it's happening to. So today I want to ask what shrinking economies and increased poverty in PNG means to you. Yeah, um, look, I think, um, you know, poverty is multifaceted and it comes in different forms. There's obviously World Bank 
you know, globally accepted definitions of poverty of what is it living on less than dollar, two dollars a day. Um, and then there's other kinds of poverty, like poverty of the mind, the inability to be able to access uh, opportunities. And I think really at the fundamental um, sort of issue is about, you know, how people can actually have that, the ability to be free, you know. And I, I'll always remember... Um, uh, a few years ago, when actually when I was in university, I'd come across the work of, you know, Dr. Uh, Amitya Sen, you know, and, uh, you know, his the whole work that he's done is development uh, as freedom, you know, it's the ability to access, uh, you know, water, safety, um, shelter, food, clothes, you know, that really is how you define freedom. It's not so much, you know, a, a, an economic indicator of how much money people have. So when I think about, you know, the rise of poverty in our region, I, 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 I can't help but look at it as being so closely associated to the lack of um, access to education. The world has shifted. We're no longer, you know, in the industrial age anymore. It's completely shifted now to information and the information age, the digital age brought about by technology, technological advancement. And when I see my people, um, we're not, we, Papua New Guinea is not a poor country, you know, we're not experiencing major droughts, you know, changes in, you know, severe changes in climate that are affecting people's ability to access food, well, not across the majority of, of the nation. And, uh, but what I do see is a rise in conflict arise in the lack of access to opportunities for young people who have t been taken away from their traditional mode of how they survive, which is on their land and put into classrooms, being told that if you get an education, then you'll have access to opportunities. But they're finishing and they're realizing that they're not able to even progress in their studies. You know, the statistics here are somewhere between 360,000 kids enrolling in elementary school every year uh, and only 37,000 finish grade 12. And out of that 37,000, only um, 10,000 make it into a higher education institute. That's a university or a college. So essentially, you're looking at 3% actually going on to higher education. So being able to get vocational skills, or a university tertiary degree. Now, after that, how many get jobs is a completely different question. But in a nation like ours, where we have strategic assets, um, land that is fertile, arable land, clean water, um, basically across the country, you know, there's rivers and hydro, don't even talk about the marine stock. We, we really do not have a reason to be poor. But I think the heart of poverty is that lack of ability for people to be able to think for themselves. The literacy rate's extremely low, some of the lowest in the region. I think it's somewhere around 60% adult literacy. Um, when it comes to schools and kids in school, I think the Pacific Island Literacy Numeracy Assessment, um, the results were you know, very, very disappointing for kids that are in the education system. I think it was somewhere around, you know, three or four out of 10 students that were surveyed across the thousands of students that um, participated in the, the assessment. Uh, you know, only, uh, um, yeah, three or four actually had basic, were able to pass basic grade six um, reading comprehension exams. You know, and what does, what does that say about our future? You know, freedom, self-determination, it all starts from 
the beginning of being able to think for yourself and then being able to digest information so that you can actually, you know, increase your own quality of life. So whilst I, I you know, I, those are the things that really burden me and, and keep me up at night. But also when I look around, I see that there's a lot of good work also being done, particularly in changing that narrative that we have been taught here around uh, you need to get an education to get a job. And you have very strong leaders like um, Governor Alan Bird, who's the governor from my province back at home, who has modeled, you know, something very different. Um, finished from university, got a job at Octedi, one of the largest mines, but always knew that he wanted to do something for his people. So he then went home and he, you know, is now known as the Vanilla Man. He basically, you know, started uh, the the whole um, you know, turning it into a cash crop and uh, has developed, you know, that. And uh, we now see what he's doing with cocoa and really helping to give young people that different perspective that you do not need to get a job, helping to put farmers back on the map. And how do you actually build around these communities and give them essential services that they need? Because actually, like, uh, I mean, vanilla and isipic was basically like it boomed without any government intervention. It was farmers themselves learning how to grow the crop, teaching themselves, sharing um, the the seeds and and then going and exporting across the border uh, to Indonesia. So it's an example of how what people can do when they self organize, and uh, and that's what we need more of. Mm, that's such a powerful shift in narrative. And Serena, you said two things that were really interesting there. First, that poverty is multifaceted; it's not just a a metric of the World Bank. And the second thing you said is that the heart of poverty is the inability to think for oneself. And I find that sometimes when we talk about poverty, we fall into old binary assumptions of the empowered and the powerless, and we forget the vigor, the fight, the ideas, the inspiration that comes with the challenge of wanting something else, of wanting a different narrative. Yes. And so what excites you amidst the challenge of this period in Papua New Guinea? Oh, yeah. Um yeah, look, a lot excites me. Um, you know, when I think about the population, I, I think, you know, it's, it's a paradox because there are things that excite you, but then also scare you at the same time. So absolutely, uh, when I, you know, I think now of where this country is in terms of its, you know, the, the demographic, it's basically 75% of the population between the ages of 15 to 25. I mean, that's a new nation being born right there, you know, mm. so they represent a challenge, but they also represent an opportunity because they're growing up in a very different time. And uh, the opportunity that they have to harness uh, um, the technology that is there, you know, to be able to uh, think outside the box and to develop new skills and to help bring Papua New Guinea into the 21st century. I, I think that's to me more than it being a challenge, because obviously we're, we're experiencing crime, we're experiencing, you know, such high levels of um, unemployment that's resulting in so many other social issues. Uh, it can be harnessed and it can be turned around with the right investment. And uh, the critical enablers need to be there. We need to get our act in order when it comes to education. And the aid program puts a lot of money into education. But if there's anything I can say right now, it's not only training in pedagogical skills that will shift the game here. Teachers need access to resources, books, 
teaching curriculum, all of those things, when they are in place, will help teachers be able to better deliver uh, lessons in the classroom. We need to harness that and put it into the things that actually matter, the critical enablers. Um, and the more work that I do in education, the more I realize that the only way we'll be able to solve the literacy problem, the only way we'll be able to really solve the education gap, and I say literacy because it's literacy goes beyond just having a you know, formal education. It's actually, it's about, you know, cocoa literacy, farmers' financial literacy. It's, it's again, it's nutrition. It's, it's multifaceted. Technology is able to deliver that in a day and age like this. So, you know, I think um, apart from the investments that we've seen, you know, in the country, which is mainly when I, th and I think about the engine room of growth, which essentially is the private sector, um, We've had, uh, you know, basically <laughs> all the mining, oil and gas giants, you know, come into the country. But I have to say, you know, the promises of 2007, where, you know, we were hearing around the news of a new gas pipeline that would come into Queensland later evolved into the PNG LNG um, gas project with ExxonMobil investing. It has, uh, I have seen, you know, change. People will ask how obviously it hasn't impacted, you know, so many of the rural population that continue to be where they are. But what it has done is help to enable and build a middle class. And that's what Papua New Guinea needs. Uh, opportunities for the working class to have access to better jobs, have access to higher income so that they can support their families and also their extended families who basically are, you know, rely on individuals, not so much uh, um, uh, the other way around. Yeah. The Goodwill Hunters Summer Series is creating big waves in the development sector. Now, in preparation for our autumn series, we are looking for a brand partner. Could it be you? If your company wants to support development debate, promote your work to our audience, and get brand recognition amongst the leaders of this $5 billion industry, then please get in touch. Your ad could be featured in each of our episodes. Details on how to get in touch are in the show notes. Serena, it's certainly refreshing to hear you speaking so passionately about the foundations of education and just how critical that is to other modes of development. Because obviously in the development sector, in, in my country, in many countries right now, the focus is, of course, on health and economic recovery. And sometimes we forget that these long-term foundations still require investment. Um, but Serena, you and I have both had careers that have woven in and out of government, private sector and civil society. And we've often joked how each one of those players think that they are the most important <laughs> key to social development. Mm. Uh, when we're in an NGO, we think that NGOs have all the answers. When we're yes. in government, we think it's government too. What are your reflections on what makes great building blocks for a state progress in a place like PNG? That's such a good question. Um, look, I think that if you look at it in terms of stages of growth and development, obviously a country like mine, because it's a lot more younger, um, there was a role, you know, for the state to be extremely big and large and basically be the biggest employer, you know, independence time. Um, but where it is now, it we really, the critical enablers need to be there. We need to get law and order in you know, in order <laughs> so that we can have private sector investment uh, um, in the country and increase that. Because, uh, like I said, essentially at the end of the day, it's not about state delivering services. It's about making sure that uh, people and 
you know, the role of business. Uh, people are able to, businesses are able to, investors can invest in the country to create jobs. Because at the end of the day, like, where does agency come from? Like, I think that's sort of the question I'm asking. Like, how do I increase my individual agency? When I think about the things that have mattered to me, because I've worked in the private sector, I've worked in governments, and I've, you know, started, you know, what I might think is a successful um, NGO that has been able to survive uh, beyond me. Um, I, I just think that that's all come because actually at the center of it all was an individual that... Uh, had a vision and was able to make the most of opportunities that presented themselves in front of me. And really at the end of the day, whatever vehicle you decide to use to drive, whether it's in an NGO, whether it's in the private sector or it's, you know, in government, so it's it's really about being able to bring to the floor, you know, your ideas and, you know, being able to channel all of that through. So, you know, I could I could go on any issue like you want to tackle gender-based violence you need the NGOs but you also need the good good policy you know but at the end of the day government wants to implement things it needs to be able to deliver deliver public goods that comes back to taxation so you need to have <laughs> the economic tax base as well so it's it's again it's yeah that's a tough question. Yeah, it's a complex web uh, for sure. results in progress. And Serena, PNG is, of course, one of Australia's most critical development partners. We share a mutual interest in inclusive economic growth, health and social stability in each other's countries, like any neighbours would. But we do also share a colonial history that, frankly, plenty of my PNG friends roll their eyes over. Can you tell us a little about how Papua New Guineans see Australia? Oh, yeah, that's that's a tough one because I can't really purport to speak on behalf of all Papua New Guineans. Um, but look, Australia has and will always be, you know, the most important uh, um, development cooperation partner for, for, for our nation. Not only that, because really essentially, you know, our shared history goes, uh, you know, way beyond colonization. You know, I, I think back to the fact that at one point, way, way, way back, our islands were joined, you know. So the first Australians and us, uh, you know, that tie goes back thousands and thousands of years. I was in Daru mm. recently and I, you know, went past, I went out to Moorhead Station and as I was flying out, they were pointing out to me the the islands that we share, like I literally didn't have that perspective. The fact that it's literally just a boat right away um, mm. across the Torres Strait, you know. So it's actually our linkages are ancient, um, and in this modern times, you know, obviously the state of Australia, um, the the modern nation state, and the development cooperation, it it is there. But I think sometimes it masks over already the people to people links that we. We currently have, and I, I wanted to share a quick story. Like the missionaries that had come up before, and had delivered education and health services. They came out to a Papua New Guinea that didn't have oil, gold, gas, nothing. They came out because they wanted to serve, and because of them, my dad had an education. I would not have the opportunities that I have today had it not been for them. My sister is now a resident of Australia. And mm. I remember um, when we went gone five years ago, my dad had come down for her graduation. She was graduating from her, from her master's 
and she had said, "Oh, Dad, we're going to church." So she was taking he was she was taking him to Mount Gravatt, the um, Hillsong Church in, in Mount Gravatt. And as they were going, my dad was like, "Oh, sorry, Molly, there's a church somewhere here. Um, the missionaries they actually were the ones that came out and served, and the church would fundraise uh, for the teachers to come across. It's at a place called Mount Gravatt. Do you know where that is?" And she was sitting there floored, like I was floored. She was like, actually, Dad, I'm taking you there now. That's where I go to church. And he was like, it was the former AOG church, Assemblies of God. And, you know, again, so when I when I say, you know, it's, again, it's it's a lot more deeper. And there are different lenses that you can look at our partnership and our cooperation with. But I think the future of, you know, the the relationship between Australia and PNG will, will be primarily defined by the young people if we can make those connections, because we're in a time of global transition. And there are so many things about Papua New Guinea that young Australians can learn. And there's so many things about the world that young Papua New Guineans can learn. And if we can increase those linkages and create a narrative for our shared region, because face it, we are in a very strategic region in the world. We're the gateway across, you know, to the West. And uh, I think the the new Australians that are there, there's, there's so much more that they can learn to really appreciate about the beauty and the ancient history of the land and the oceans that they are part of. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, that made me remember, Serena, I actually made a, f- a bet with a friend some time ago that you might be Prime Minister of Papua New Guinea one day. Goodness um, me, Brighty, seriously. <laughs> no. I, I won't ask you if that's on the cards, but no. I do want to ask you, as a leader of your country, what do you want most from a country like Australia in this relationship? relationship beyond colonial times? I, I mean, I, I think we want friendship, essentially. And uh, I think that's what I've been most privileged to have. Uh, um, you know, when I think about The Voice, Inc., which is the organization I helped start, and it's really defined a lot of my life, um, that was actually done by, you know, the support I had from Dimity Pfeiffer, who was the CEO for Australian Volunteers at that time, was the chair and basically my mentor and my coach. And uh, what she treated me as was an equal, someone that had valid ideas. And she said, I believe in you. And she said, hey, I'm just going to use, you know, my position of power and expose you to things that you might not have, you know, the chance to actually have exposure to in your own country. And she mentored me, you know. So when I think about, you know, the future and where this relationship needs to go, they need to be based on a genuine interest in each other in our region, you know, in what we can offer to the world. Because again, I said, we're situated in a very different uh, geographical area. Our lands are ancient. Our stories go way, way back. So I I really believe that if we can somehow capture that and from a people-to-people level, that can then translate into the way we frame our development cooperation, you know, being more mutual in being able to listen to each other a lot more better than what we are now, like... that friendship will always be there and it's it's to stay. Mm, absolutely. Authentic relationship is, uh, makes for a good partnership. Serena, you've worked extensively with USAID and, of course, you're no stranger to the Australian aid and development portfolio as well. And recently you've just come back from an EU Leaders Summit. How... How is it working with different donors, different countries? Are these attributes of friendship different between donors? That's a really good question. Um, I might actually talk more about the sort of um, exposure that I've had maybe through 
uh, funding that The Voice has received, its core funding from Bread for the World, uh, which is a German-based donor. Um, it, uh, uh, it used to also be um, EED funding, is basically the uh, the government's aid program through the churches. Um, and then there was a merger between EED and Bread for the World anyway. So basically they have a large pool of funding that they give out to nations across um, the world and in different regions. In Papua New Guinea, it's been really interesting the way they've worked because they really are working to build civil society. They've really, I think, going in and being a bit more exposed to <laughs> their ideas where they're really trying to challenge and understand this different the paradigm of development and how it works and how sometimes it doesn't. Actually, a lot of the times it doesn't. Um, uh, they have, you know, very interesting study around, studies around economic resilience. They've really been pushing the agenda of climate change uh, and I think for me, what has been most valuable out of this partnership was when they came and they identified The Voice um, as a very young, you know, youth-led organization in 2010. They've helped to give us funding and helped grow the organization, not by telling us what to do or setting the agenda for us, but by actually going through processes of uh, um, reflection and design, you know, it's really now we have all these fancy words for it, you know, like thinking, working politically, you know, uh, all these uh, six months action research, all of that. But anyway, they were doing it, not calling it that, but helping us listen to the way change was happening around us and helping us respond through funding rounds. So I think it's it's more the way development cooperation is done to build local organizations and having the right incentives there around governance um, and then helping to build and grow organizations by letting them set priorities and then helping to fund those priorities. I think sometimes with the, the way aid is packaged in a very big way, millions and millions of dollars there, and then they just start looking for local NGOs that can implement their ideas, the ideas of the INGOs. Um, and, you know, really at the end of the day, once that funding is done, what have you really done to build that local organization? And how have you really helped them work through setting their own priorities for how they see, how do you tackle gender? Hey, have you ever thought of that? Not really the way we would look at it from a feminist lens down, but actually seeing how does the community themselves define their gender relations and how that has to be transformed and nothing works overnight here. <laughs> it's a life's work. So I, I, I think having exposure to different donors and the way they view development and the pace of development, how development priorities are set, that's been what's been most interesting about the Australian, you know, um, especially versus the German experience. But I have to say, The Voice has been very fortunate. We have been supported by the Australian government for the last three, four years under their governance program. And we haven't asked for money. They've really been helping to bring in technical assistance to help build up the organization and support us. So when I see that, you know, through Australian aid, uh, I, it makes me get really excited because there are things that work in the aid program and that work really well. But it's also the champions that are in, you know, the high commission that work for the aid program that are helping to shape that. So I definitely salute all the heroes that have really stood with us. <laughs>
Serena, that does remind me of the research that I was lucky enough to conduct in in your sector in in Papua New Guinea. And one of the results of that research, which was looking at the provision of Australian aid to Papua New Guinea, was that it was less about what was funded and more about how it was delivered and exactly what you're describing, that listen first and follow our lead approach was certainly what was most well regarded by the Papua New Guinean leaders in that piece of research. Um, (laughs) Sticking with that, though, last week I was lucky enough to have one of uh, DFAT's best and brightest, James Gilling, on the show, and he spoke emphatically about the government's commitment to following the lead of local development actors. And really, I think he's speaking about people like yourself. After all, economic progress and freedom, as Amartya Sen puts it, in a country like PNG, is led first and foremost by people like you, not by donors. So how do donors get behind organisations like yours and others in Papua New Guinea? What is most useful? Um, Look, I think it's uh, about just being really, I guess, attentive to where change is actually coming from and how in a country context it is uh, being led. understanding who are the local actors, not understanding and not absolutely understanding that money at times does not equate, you know, progress or help for these organizations. But being able to really, um, I think, have that hat on where, you know, everything in this country is is political. And I'm, I'm saying that in a sense that if the heart of politics is relationships, then in a country like this where the state doesn't work as well as it should, relationships is everything. Relationships is survival. So I think always remembering that when you are dealing with complex relationship, the balance as well is quite fragile. So it really is an ecosystem. And when something is thrown at one and propped up quite big, becomes a bit bigger and it upsets the balance of these complicated web of relationships. That's something that's really important to note. Um, it's important as well to, I think, just uh, like the programs that are being delivered, and I don't undermine that at all. It's actually, it's important, the health program, you know, what's being done to help build up, um, you know, health systems, deliver vaccines, you know, build roads, etc. Um, there's, there's, That's all well and good because it's keeping people alive. But long-term change will happen in terms of how local actors are supported to to drive their own agenda. So that, again, is something that, you know, you really have to just have that that eye to listen and be quite – have that appetite to be well-connected into in the context that you're in and see where change Mm. is happening and how it's happening. Mm. Well, finally, Serena, you have always got a whole array of exciting projects on the go at any given time. Are there any that you'd like to share today with our listeners? Um, well, I, I, you know, I think I'm incredibly privileged to work for one of the largest, actually the largest mobile telecommunications uh, company, you know, in Papua New Guinea called Digicel. Um, through the company, we have a foundation um, uh, that's led by uh, myself as the CEO. Um, the foundation, obviously, is basically the heart, you know, and vision of the owner of the company, Dennis O'Brien, who 
if I can, and maybe I might be a bit biased, say that he's definitely one of the most extraordinary leaders of our time. And I say that because not everyone would, and not anyone, <laughs> you know, would have the appetite to invest and pull across billions into a country like ours, um, you know, and build a whole tower network out and have a real focus on rural Papua New Guinea. Um, so... Uh, there are a lot of exciting projects that I get to pitch to him uh, and help lead, um, especially around literacy, looking at, uh, you know, um, also building designs. We've built over 600 classrooms in all 89 districts of the country. I love that at the core of what we do, it's really, it's rural and it's reaching the most uh, unreached. Um, but recently I've been given the okay and green light to work with uh, the company and, uh, and the business to roll out uh, um, an education television channel, so a full 24-hour dedicated education channel um, that will basically, I think, revolutionize the way that information is uh, disseminated um, across the nation um, through television, through using mobile telecommunications, um, the network, uh, to get resources um, out to teachers and to schools. So, um I'm extremely excited about this project, and uh, you know, if anyone knows me, I don't do anything lightly. I, I go at it heart and soul. So uh, you'll definitely be hearing about this, and I do hope that it's something that um, we'll be able to get more Australians involved in as well, because we all have an interest in making sure Papua New Guinea is a strong um, nation. A strong Papua New Guinea means a strong region, you know, and a strong region, you know, is is just is good for the world. Serena, that is extraordinarily exciting news to finish on. A new free-to-air educational TV channel 24 hours a day in Papua New Guinea with you at the helm. I think that is something that we'll, we'll all be watching very closely in the coming months. Well, that's it for today. Serena, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on Goodwill Hunters and we hope that you have a wonderful year ahead. Thank you so much, Riley. It's been a pleasure.